Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. It's been a while since last time, but um, a lot of us are quarantined right now because of the coronavirus, so there's ample time for editing. I've actually been uh, quite excited about this episode for some time now. We have our first tech on, and a tech for a legendary bass player and a tech that's been involved very heavily in representing this bass player, dealing with companies when it comes to signature models. Also, our guest Terry Welty has owned a PA company for many years before he started bass teching, is therefore intimately uh, knowledgeable about speaker design and a lot of things of that nature. Uh, and I couldn't be more excited to nerd out with him. I had the good fortune of catching Terry after a very, very long day of tour rehearsals for the band Foreigners. Las Vegas debut. Uh, I fully expected Terry to cancel because he'd had an extremely long day, but we met in a loud and large Las Vegas casino bar and we still got this episode done. So I really hope you guys enjoy it and I hope to do more episodes like this. So let's go to Las Vegas and talk to Mr. Terry Welty. Terry Welty, welcome to the Lowdown Society podcast. Well, thank you very much. we met about, I want to say, a year ago or so in Hollywood, California. Yeah, I was right. I was playing a jam night, and I was walking. Oh, yeah, in, yeah. I was walking into the Rainbow afterwards to see our mutual friend Kyle, and uh, you grabbed my arm and or spoke up about my old vintage Yamaha basses I was playing. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I have one. <laughs> and uh, the last two or three years since I've been in L.A. playing mostly rock, I've been completely nuts about these old Yamahas, and yeah, I, I bought it. five of them. So wow. just the fact that somebody wanted to talk to me about that, and then Kyle told me, like, oh, he was Geezer's tech. you got to talk more to him. Yeah. So here we are a year later talking more. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. we finally caught up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you are, if we start from right now, you are in rehearsals with Foreigner for their Vegas residency, right? Yes, well, that's correct. So you guys are starting tomorrow night? Tomorrow night's the first show here in Vegas, yes. Oh, cool, yeah, and I'll be, I'll be there. Oh, great, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went out and visited you guys on a foreigner show out here in Palm Springs. Yes. I didn't talk to you much that day because you were working hard. One of the SVTs were broken. Yeah, of course. And you, <laughs> and you, had, and you had to fix it. Uh, yeah, the, the, so, the dreaded tube day, yes. So... Many of my friends in LA that are on pop tours now, it's, it's, I mean, even if the scale is the absolute largest scale in the world, the biggest artist, there's a lot of campers and stuff. Yes. But you are out on a tour where there are, there are a lot of old school, there are a lot of old school amps and a lot of real stuff going on. Yeah, but you know, that's, uh, that's changing now because uh, uh, we started up in uh, middle January, first uh-huh. show with Foreigner. And uh, Jeff Pilson is a bass player I work with, and uh, I also do guitar, uh, Tom Gimble, uh, that also plays sax and flute. But uh, Jeff uh, had expressed interest in a Kemper, and he got one. Mm-hmm. So we used it uh, at the first show, and it was with the or- orchestra stuff we were doing, because we can't use a cabinet there, because yeah. it's obviously too loud. Uh, so, you know, we were using, like, Sans amps and things, trying not to use the cabinet. But he got this Kemper. You know, and I'm not a digital guy yeah. in any aspect of the yeah. means. Yeah. Uh, I'm an old analog guy. Yeah. This I understand. But yeah. uh, he brought this this Kemper in, and you know, I did a little research online before we got it, and 
kind of learned how to work. And I talked to some friends in the business that has worked, you know, worked with these before uh, to show me some insight and things to do. And we got this thing. Jeff had already modeled it after his uh, his very vintage uh, SVT. Jeff got a what's called a Kemper Profiler, uh, and he he did the you know modeling of, of his favorite SVT. It's I think it's a '71. Man, and it, let me tell you something. Holy moly, these things sound really good. Uh, we use it in in conjunction with the Sans amp. We also have a Sans amp. Uh, it's funny because I was just looking up online because uh, well, I'm going to get a spare because we don't have a spare yet. Um, uh, anyway, I remember in a second. But anyway, so we we use them in combination with the uh, the Ampeg head, and it sounds just like his rig did. Yeah. I mean, you you can't tell the difference. It sounds like the cabinet. Yeah. So uh, today when I, when he came in to rehearse, uh, he said, well, I just ordered three more. I'm like, sweet. So we're going to get rid of the old heads, uh, unfortunately, but uh, no more 810 cabinets, no more, you know, really cool tube amps. So as of right now, you've, you guys have made that change a lot, or Jeff has. Yes, yeah. which I, you know, I, I'm kind of happy about it because I these will these will take the road a little bit better, I think, than a old tube heads, especially you know doing 110 or 115 shows a year that these guys do, and they do it all over the world. It's not just in the states. I mean, we travel everywhere and do it, so it's kind of hard on these things, you know. I.e., the night that, that we met where I couldn't talk because I was working on a head. You know? Yeah, yeah. So his favorite one that he modeled was a 70. Were you there when he did the modeling process? Or? No, but I will be. We're doing that again. Uh, here in town uh next week uh we're going to go into a studio and do some modeling of a different amplifier okay great uh, which i'll go to just to because i haven't been exposed to that yet so i want to see watch the process and see how they they kind of figure it out be kind of interesting yeah my magic svt is a 74 and i have it i have it mod i don't own a kemper but i have it modeled a friend of mine that loved my head so much and he's a kemper guy so there's a profile on my head that i can use when when time comes, that yeah, I, I think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised how well these these actually do. I mean, they, yeah. they I mean, I've, I've got a, I, I don't know, I think mine's a '72, uh, but yeah. you know that, it, you know, I'll be buried with that in my '61 precision, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a, uh, it's a, uh, well, you know, when I when I did the uh, the pickups with EMG for Geezer, uh, I had a couple of prerequisites when I when I was talking to them guys about it. And one was I wanted uh, no batteries involved. You know, I don't like an active. I just want a passive circuit. Yeah. And I wanted the pole pieces exposed because they haven't done that in years and years and years. Yeah, the EMG thing is not have any pole pieces exposed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they used to back in the, you know, I don't know when it was, 70s or something. Yeah. But, you know, they got away from that in the 80s, I think. And that was their kind of look, and it worked. You know, they sound great. Yeah. Uh, you know, my geezer butler signature pickups, of course, sound better than anything they've ever had, of course. Yeah. Uh, but the reason I brought that up is because of my, I modeled them after my 61. Oh, really? So, you know, I plugged my 61 into my 72 amp and through an old, you know, well, then it was a 410 that I built for another band called Gravity Kills back in the early 90s. Okay. And uh, that was a rig. And it, yeah. and that's where these, these pickups kind of came from, just ears and speakers. You know, no, no computers, none of that nonsense. Just listening to him, uh, you know, I'd, I'd send him back to Chris Johnson, who was my contact at the time at EMG, and uh, on the uh, on the third prototype, it was right. It was 
right on the money. So what was, what was that exchange like between you and Chris as far as when you sent him stuff and when he sent you the first prototype? And what was, how, how did the feedback happen? And well, he, he, he sent me um, just a kind of a general mock-up okay. uh, of a pickup with pull pieces exposed. And it was just kind of a generic kind of sound. It was, I don't know if I had to, I would say it was like a Squire bass, kind of whatever pickup they use in that. Yeah. It's not bad, but it just wasn't the sound I was looking for. Uh, so, you know, I, I took note of what I wanted to hear more of or less of, um, you know, and I, I talked to Chris about it. And, you know, then I, I did use a graphic EQ just to kind of, so I could see what, what these pickups were doing. And I use a tone generator just to see, you know, just to give it a frequency and find out what that figure was doing. And, uh, you know, so I'd write down the notes, send it to Chris, and it, they, they'd do me another one. They'd send me another pickup with my notes in it. Uh, and the second one came around. It was it was close, but it was I needed a little bit more mid-range in there like the, like the early, you know, late or kind of early 60s had in their bases. And, um, you know, so I, I sent him notes on that one, and they, they, sent, him, they sent me the third prototype. And I, and I kid you not, I, I bought like, I don't know, six or seven guitars or bass guitars on Craigslist, mm -hmm. where I live in St. Louis, and put these pickups in them. So that way I wouldn't have to, because I got tired of taking the pickups out of my 61 and putting them back in. Oh, of course, yeah. That'd be a pain in the butt. So I just bought these old basses, and, you know, they all weighed the same, you know, so I had the same weight, body. I mean, the wood was kind of the same, because that will matter. Uh, but what mattered to me was strings and pickups. Yeah. Uh, so I used the same strings. Uh, which are DRs, and uh, uh, got the sound I was looking for on a third prototype. So uh, they sent me three pair, and they, these were just a P pickup. We, I, we designed a, a PJ style as well, a different story, but uh, the the, uh, the P pickups they sent me, and I put them in one of my bases that I own and played them out at, you know, we have a crew band. Uh, with foreigners, so I put them in a bass there, and we were you know, like playing around. We do sound checks, we do our crew band stuff, and I checked the bass that way to see how I was going to transpose over speakers and stuff, using Jeff's old head and the A10. And uh, as I was with foreigner back, well, yeah, I was still with foreigner back then. I was with, uh, I was doing Aussie stuff and then Sabbath stuff and then foreigner stuff. And then when for when uh, Ozzy and them took a break, then I just came to Foreigner, and then you know they Sabbath started back up, so I went back to Sabbath, and then when they retired in '17, I came back to Foreigner. So anyway, blah blah blah, all this stuff. So I got the uh, the prototype in, and I didn't tell Geezer, I didn't tell anybody. I just put the pickups in what would we call the birthday base. It's a white '52 uh, P base that he had that uh, Lakeland Guitars made him. It was a birthday gift from me to him from Lakeland because I called him and said I want something really cool he likes the old 52s and so they made one it was brilliant just a is this the one with the old with the, so the, the soccer team logo on the base well that was the last base that that uh, I that uh, Lakeland made for me for him okay uh, and I because I wanted something special for the for the last because I knew that was it that was going to be the end of the yeah. of the Sabbath run yeah uh, so I, it was uh, the Austin Villa base, we call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, I, d I derailed you there. You were talking about getting the first birthday base and at a sound check. And, yes, yeah. yes. Well, that was that was the white base. It was yeah. white, and uh, uh, and I put these pickups in it, and because uh, Gizzy only played it on on uh, two songs at that time. Yeah. And at the end of the show, when you come off stage, he walked by and he goes, "Man, whatever you did to the white base, do it to the rest of them because it just sounds amazing." And five minutes later, uh, Craig Price, the sound, the sound guy for Sabbath, uh, 
made it a point to come talk to me to tell me how good that white bass sounded. And I said, well, great, I'm on to something. And I, you know, I, I invited him to Geezer's room, so Greg Guy and Geezer sat there, and I told him, I said, well, here's what I did. I made you a Geezer Butler signature pickup with EMG, and you just heard it tonight for the first time. So you guys have a longstanding enough relationship where you can start working with a company sort of under the guise of his name and not let him know. And then when you think it's right, you let him know what you've been up to kind Absolutely. of a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I've known Geezer a long time, and uh, – you know, I was with him back in the 90s. Yeah. You know, I was his sound guy when he was doing his, his solo stuff with GZR. And, uh, you know, he liked, and I was working for his son's band at the time, Apartment 26. Uh, you know, so we got to know each other pretty well. I mean, you know, he, he, he came to see both my kids when they were born. I mean, they were little, you know, they were a couple hours old. But, yeah. you know, that, so yeah, we kind of get along pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Chris Johnson was, well, when I first met Chris, he was my contact at Ampeg when Geezer was still with Ampeg way back when. And then Chris moved to EMG, and Geezer says, well, I like Chris. Let's, uh, let's find him something to do. Oh, so so I did. Yeah. So we, went, we did the pickup thing without, without Geezer knowing it, but, you know, he was happy that it was EMG, and, of course, Chris was involved. So, I mean, not that this is to plug stuff, but we might as well. So that EMG pickup is still for sale under, what's the model name for it? Well, it's, it's a Geezer Butler signature pickup, yeah, okay. that's, and it comes in two... Uh, Guises. It's but there's a P style and then a PJ, okay. uh, because that's pretty much what Geezer played on the road. And I thought, well, um, he really he, he did have a, a J bass, but uh, he only played it a few times. Uh, but when and when Heaven and Hell was together, he used to play it a lot. But when Sabbath got back together, he was more of the P style or PJ. So I thought, well, better do two kinds of pickups. So we did uh, the P pickups, which is the first ones, and then the yeah. PJ. And it's, it's loosely based on a sixty-one. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it was a, there, I had a 60 involved as well, but the 61 was pretty much, uh, and it's all original, you know, beat up. Just it's it's a put it this way. When I showed it to Geezer, he's like, "You want to sell it?" And I said, "No. Yeah. No way." Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing with his name on it that's for sale right now then is the Ashdown head. Yes. And uh, earlier today, when I was sort of researching to do this little hang, yeah. uh, there was quite a, quite a few YouTube videos either made by the company or, or where your name was mentioned. And, yeah. and it talked, uh, you were given a lot of credit as in you were the guy that worked with the company to develop it more yes. so than Geezer. And, well, and, yes. I yeah. mean, but, you know, Geezer, it's like the, the greatest, the great thing about Geezer is he knows what's good in his in his ears yep. uh, he doesn't understand why you know so his so what he tells me is like he goes i don't know anything about that stuff you do it yeah so i do it because i know i kind of know what he likes just by you know listening to him every night for 20 years you know you kind of get you kind of figure that stuff out yeah. uh but with you know even talking with the ashtown guys was uh I, I think they was a bit surprised because of some of the things I wanted to do with this thing, you know, uh, you know, because I, I did we did we did use their stuff before and I did do some research on it, and I, I love their meters and like the old school looking meters and stuff. I had the ABM nine hundred for okay, two years okay. on tour, so I'm so, familiar. Yeah. And this is loosely kind of based off that yeah. series of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, how long does this podcast go? Do I got time to like to ramble? Well, like we literally can go for as long as we want. Okay, because yeah. I mean I can I can go to the backstory. So. Yeah. Um, what happened was years ago, uh, during Heaven and Hell, 
uh, we had stored, I had two uh, base, base rigs. I had one stored in England at Geezer's storage facility and another one stored in St. Louis at my house. So that way, because we used to, we would leapfrog stuff. So if we were in Russia, I'd send the English rig. And if we was in South America, I'd send the United States rig. It's just cheaper to get them there at, you know, at, at whatever. I think it was $8 a pound. Uh, you know, you kind of want to look at that pretty hard because yeah. right, it gets expensive. Uh, and I built both these rigs identical in my shop in St. Louis. So, I mean, down to the cable. I mean, the cable lengths was exactly the same on both rigs. Yeah. Uh, everything. So they weighed the same. They sounded the same. They looked the same. Uh, and so I split them up. And what happened was we were using the old uh, Ampeg SVT2 rack mount versions. Yeah. Uh, not the pros. The old nice, good, heavy twos. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately in England in January, there was a, a water main had broken the storage facility and put these amps under about six feet of water and it froze uh so my clement tony Army's guitar tech came over because he lives in england near, near geezer and he went over and dug him out of the ice and they unfortunately were uh non-repairable so i was in trouble because we had a tour starting and i needed 12 amplifiers like in a heartbeat and uh i called ampeg and you know <laughs> bummer for us but uh uh, Michael Anthony from from Van Halen took all they had, so I, th I, I think he, he played those. Twos. He took like sixty of them, so I called Michael and said, "Hey, can you can you you know ease up on like twelve of these things?" And he's like, "Man, he goes, we're doing the same thing you're doing. He goes, we're we're leapfrogging. So I'm I got stuff here, got stuff there, and I'm like, damn it, you know. So, and so we're rehearsing in uh, outside of Birmingham, and I, you know, Geezer looked at me, he goes, "Well, get do something." I said, "Okay." So I started just calling basehead companies. I called Orange and. Uh, Ashdown and uh, man, there was uh, there was five or six of them that would. So every day, these bass amp people would come out, and I would have to hook up a rig so he could rehearse through it. You know, and some were good, and some were not so good, and you know, some lasted a note. And he's like, I don't like that. Turn it off. So, uh, but that's when I first met the Ashdown guys, and lo loved the product. Then it was, I mean, it was super clean and just sounded great. But the problem was it wouldn't distort. You know, and Guy's likes he likes a natural distortion coming from the amplifier. He doesn't like to use a pedal. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they took me to their their facility and their head engineer, and we made a circuit so, to, so it would distort the, the bass on its output. But it wasn't enough. You know, he wanted a little bit more distortion. But, I, I mean, these amps are so good, you just couldn't get it to do it. Uh, so we wound up working with uh, Harky because they had what they called an overdrive circuit so you could push that in it would overdrive a little tube on their input side uh, which is okay uh, but Harky uh, uh, I'm sorry uh, you know we were still kind of Harky was a good amp it was it, for what it was it was great it worked good it's built like a tank I mean we went I mean we went all over the world with this thing it, and they were good we, I had oh I guess eight of them we were running and uh, I, not, I, I had problem with one amp one time and it was just one side went down, uh, you know, probably because we was in Mexico and we were traveling on dirt roads and stuff. But, yep. you know, whatever. Yep. But, but we had spare amps, you know. No problem. We got it fixed in Mexico. It was great. Uh, but when I, met, when I met Ashtown, that got me kind of interested. When I was in their facility, I noticed they had a two-space amplifier, like, like a PA kind of amplifier, and then a little preamp on top. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, that was John Entwistle's rig. 
And I said, well, let's look at that thing. That's a good starting point, right? Because yeah. of the heavy attack in the same time period. And yeah, and, yeah, but it was but it was based on a on a bass amp instead, yeah. not a, like a PA kind of thing. So uh, that you know that definitely piqued my interest. So they they sent me one of the amplifiers and the preamp, and I thought this is cool. So I you know I put it in a little rig for Geezer's room, and he checked on. He goes, yeah, this is good. Let's let's do something with this. And I said, okay. And in his words, he's like. I don't know nothing about it. You do it. So I said, okay. So I called Ash down and, and asked him, is there – now, now uh, they had come out to a gig actually in Tennessee. I mean, after a big show they was at, uh, they, uh, Dan came in and, uh, uh, and brought – I think he brought me, yeah, four amplifiers and two uh, preamps. Because on Geezer's rig, I ran uh, the bottom cabinets were four double 15 cabinets, uh, EVs, yeah. and then the top cabinets were four quad 12 cabinets, also EV, made by St. Louis Music, which was Ampeg. Yep. Uh, my, my buddy Bob Freewall was the guy that built these cabinets because Geezer had them built back in, I guess, it was in the probably early 90s, and they, they didn't have their plans anymore, so. I called Bob and said, I want to get some more of these cabinets. He goes, well, you got to send me the, the measurements. So I took pictures, sending measurements, and so we built more. So I had my two rigs. Uh, so I had a total of eight bottoms and eight tops. I split them up into two rigs. Uh, anyway, so uh, that, this is the reason I had two amps and a preamp was for my low-end speakers and then two amps and a preamp for my high speakers, which was my 12s, which I ran to two ohms. And they would, they would run all day. I mean, the amp didn't even get hot, that two-ohm load. You know, not the geezer's really loud, but that's how I combat it was I, I wanted more mass than volume. You know, so that's why I had 16 speakers of, of 12-inch uh, on stage because I didn't have to go to 10. You know, I could yeah. go to 2 and, and sound really good and, and fill up a stage nicely. Yeah. And, uh, he, and he liked to feel the, 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 he liked his foot to rattle a little bit with them 15s. Uh, so the speakers, when I, I built these steel frames, I got rid of the cases and I built these steel frames that held the speakers on it, but I, I used four nickels under each corner on the bottom of the 15s to, to raise up the frames a little bit so the speakers would actually touch the floor so he could get his feel. Uh, and then we attached them with lag bolts and stuff like that. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I did all that just to save money because the cases, I, I saved 1,200 pounds. And if you're shipping that across, you know, an ocean, you know, we saved probably you know, $10,000 in weight. Yeah. Uh, but back to the amplifier part. Sorry, I got carried away. Uh, no worries. Is, uh, so I, I took the, the John Entrussell amplifier and the preamp, and, I you know, I talked to Dan and, and Mark, at, uh, the, the two guys that kind of run Ashdown, and said, uh, can we put this in one box, you know, like a three-space, and, and we can rack mount it. And so... Uh, they worked their butts off on it and done it. Uh, so, and it's, you know, I, I think it's rated at 666 watts, but it's a little bit more than that. But yeah. We won't, we yeah. don't But uh, anyway, Marketing. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but uh, the cool things I've done with that amp is I, I wanted to, you know, when the first prototype drawing they sent me was it had an output meter. And I said, well, I'd like to put an input meter on it. I want to see what I'm doing coming in so that way I know what I'm going to be doing when I'm coming out. Uh, so we did that, and then we put uh, uh, the the distortion on it, 
uh, which was a, uh, it's a tube control distortion, like an AX7 on its input. But this time he got it right. Yeah, because uh, like I said, them guys worked hard on this thing and, and got it really dialed in. Uh, and then, so then we made it to where uh, uh, you could use, I think you could use up to 16 amps on the one, on the one uh, preamp. So you can kind of just jump them together all the way down. So you can run as many cabinets as you wanted. Uh, so we, so so that was cool. So it, was, it saved you time and wiring because, you know, back in the old days, you'd have to jump all the inputs together, which is on the front of the cabinets or in front of the, your amp racks, which I didn't like. So I, I put these in the back. So everything's in the back. And then uh, we put a, uh, even though, you know, I, I got a little bit of flack from the Ashdown boys about uh, doing it, but I wanted to put an isolated transformer on its output for XLR. So it's 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 earth grounded, you know, true earth ground, just because of the hums and buzzes like you get a lot of times, especially when you put start putting stuff in a rack. Uh, depends on its signal on its signal flow that it could induce a hum or a buzz a lot of times. Uh, so well, this would probably, you know, help to combat that where we wouldn't have to do that. Uh, so we did that, and then uh, yeah, made it rack mountable. But they took it a step even farther now, where they, they you could you could get the one with the the handle on the side, so you can carry this thing with just one handle on its yeah. side. Because it, I mean, it, I think it only weighed twenty eight pounds or yeah. something. Yeah, a lot of these class D amps that weigh five pounds, they have the little yep. hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My I wanted mine a little bit heavier than that, and I because mean, I wanted the I wanted the chassis to be sturdy. Yeah. You know, because, you know, because we, we were traveling all over the world, and the last thing I want to do is, you know, fix an amplifier with two hours before show. But, you know, not, not, not a good time. So, basically, if I understand you correctly, it's basically the ABM circuit, but with a little bit, with the availability of a little bit more distortion. Yes. Yeah. So, I, you know, it was, but it was the, the newer part of technology is when I, when I wanted to put it into one unit. So, we had to... The amplifiers were only two space, and the preamps were two space. Yeah. So we were looking at four spaces, and I thought that's too big. So you know, I talked to Mark and Dan and said, you know, can we squeeze this into three space? Uh, you know, just just because of size, and you know, because size will matter on the road. And uh, so they done it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was compromises we had to make, but uh, like we didn't use all the amplifier. Like in, in the entrustal version of the amplifier, it was twice the wattage. But we just used one side of an amp and, and yep. split it yep. instead of using the whole amp, uh, just to, so we could get everything to fit in the one box. Yeah, uh, and it worked, and it and it looks fantastic. And I was going to say, I actually, and I'm ashamed to say this because I'm such a gear nerd. I hadn't seen the amp until a few hours ago when I did some research. All right, it's a really good looking amp. Yeah, I mean their amps always were good looking with a little VU meter and everything. Yeah, but yeah. But especially, I mean, this one stands out because there's two on it now. So yeah. that's even more of a, yeah. I, you know, I guess a, a logo kind of thing if, you, if you're going for that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, if you look on a stage and you see that, you'll know it for sure yeah. because you know that's going to be an Ashdown yeah. just because of the meters. But there's two of them looking at you. Yeah. yeah. I found uh, I used an Ashdown. The, when I used the ABM 900, was on a tour in 2006 and 2007. And I was running an 810 and a 215. And... Uh, yeah. And I think the reason I got hip to them is I think Adam Clayton from U2 had just done a record with using Ashdown. And it was by far the best tone he's had, I thought. Not that I'm a hardcore U2 fan, but they do such a big band, it's hard to not be sort of familiar with everything they do. And, uh, you know, he used vintage SVTs on the previous records, but, you know, it was more darker. They didn't use a lot of high-end. Yeah. And with Ashdown, all of a sudden he had, there was pick grit. 
on U2. It was almost right, like a heavy right. metal bass tone, but it had enough clean in it where it just sounded big. Yeah. So that's how I sort of got hip to the brand, and I, I realized quickly that that's a AB, ABM pre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a, it's a that's yeah. a really really good preamp, and you know on on the Geese ramp, so it, it's the same modeling was you know they had the fader EQ and a, a rotary EQ, so and, and then we had like a tone boost uh, for a bass, and then we had uh, like a filter, like a high pass, uh, that so you could really dial in your tone because I you know I thought. You know how many kids or how many people are going to have a sixty bass or a, you know, e- even a seventy-eight bass? I mean, they're going to have newer ones. So you want to get that tone. This will do it. You know, this you can get like you can buy go to a guitar center right now and buy a Squire bass and plug it into this thing and you can get a nice tone out of it. Yeah. You know, not that it doesn't have one, but you know, on a big rig, holy moly, it is it would sound really really good, uh, just because of the con- the amount of control that I wanted to have you know with this thing was uh you can pretty much do anything with it you know distortion non-distortion you know uh i i, I there was even a circuit uh what did we put on there was a uh like an octave mm-hmm. so there was so there's an octave circuit you know i, I didn't use it but you could yeah. so you don't have to buy a five string anymore you, just, yeah. you can just press a little button and poof yeah. you know you're an octave lower now I was thinking something driving over here. I thinking I was thinking there's out of the metal guys that play with their fingers that play they play sort of close to the neck and they play so hard yeah. that they that the tone that we hear is not the finger hitting the string but it's the string hitting the fretboard. Hitting the neck, right, that's right. what we hear, yeah. which is a, m- a millisecond later. But yeah. so you're talking about Geezer, you're talking about John Ant Whistle, you're yeah. talking about Steve Harris. You said that he do, Geezer doesn't play that loud on stage, but he physically plays hard on oh, the yeah. bass. Oh yeah, he definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's so, I, I, so there's there's scars on the fretboard at the twelfth fret on the yeah. wood. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say setup wise, and is there any special uh, precautions you've taken as his tech because he is quote unquote a slap finger player, meaning he slaps the yeah. strings into yes, the board. There, well, you know, when I when I was doing the pickups with EMG. Um, is over the years I've noticed Geezer because he likes to tuck his, his thumb underneath the E string, the low E. Yeah. So he, he used to wear these little headbands, I called them, on his thumb so he wouldn't blister. Yeah. But, he, but he would dig his thumb under there so far that he would play with his index fingers and he would split his nail. So I always, I always had glue on the standby, so we just super glued it. So I just you know, put a bunch of super glue on it and blow on it and it, it would dry so he could play some more. Uh, but, so we finally figured out what was doing that and what it was was the pickup. The cover of the pickup was was a sharp edge, so with EMG is I, I had them round that edge off, so no more sharp edges. I I didn't have to file it down. You know, it's like <laughs> it's just rounded from the factory, which is good. So that saved a lot of trouble there. Uh, you know, so with him I had to keep the pickups kind of a, a midway between the string and the body, uh, because he liked to bear down, and you'd have, since he dug his thumb under the E, was he would hit the other string so hard that they could they could hit the pickup. So what I did was I would lower the pickup just, oh, about a sixteenth of an inch below the fretboard line, mm-hmm. you know. So that way he would he would fret out before he would hit the pickup with the string. That, that makes sense. Yeah, and you know it was a nice straight neck. We just you know the neck was straight, not so distressed or or you know or stressed, uh, pretty flat, straightforward, uh, not so much uh, filing on the on the nuts, you know. So I I just kind of 
from the nut to the first fret, it's kind of nice little, just a nice little even angle, about a 30 degree, I guess, uh, which was good for him because he, since he, if you play down that low, he, he would grip the neck so hard that I wanted some, some gap between the fretboard and the nut because I was worried about him breaking the nut. Yeah. You know, even, even using bone nuts was, I've seen guys break them before. So uh, I thought, well, and I didn't want to use metal, you know, because yeah. we all know what that does. But uh, uh, it just kills them strings in a heartbeat. So speaking of that, you said DR strings. Yes, yes, DR. Yeah. What what gauges does he play? Uh, it, depending on what songs. So uh, interesting fact. So one um, tens we used on the on the you know the the kind of the lower tunings, uh, and then a one hundred five on the hires. Uh, so like a C sharp uh, tuning, we do. Uh, I do a one ten. But talk with DR was it what, just wasn't. The tone of it just wasn't as good as I thought it could be. So when I talked to him, so we, we made a 115 string. Because, uh, you know, Geezer did have a five-string bass for a one song with Heaven and Hell that he played. And I thought, well, let's, let's go in between them two. Let's go between a 125 and a 110. So we did a 115, and it, uh, it, it was way, way better uh, as far as tone-wise. You know, because tuning that low, even to because we tuned to a C at one point, uh, it you know the strings kind of flopping in the breeze, but it still had a tone to it, you know, with a bigger string. Uh, so I was happy about that that they actually they would do that for me. So they, so we had a you know Geezer Butler signature series set of DR strings, yeah. you know, which was a, the 115s, uh, which worked really really good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but that was for a short while. But I mean the the, uh, the gauge strings that he used all the time was the 105s and 110s. And we used the black beauties. He liked the black colored strings. Okay. Uh, but uh, because they came in a black on 110, but they could, they could do other colors in a 105. So, I, you know, I did all the colors. I did the gold and the red and the blue and silver and yellow. And uh, I, that's why I did the, uh, the, the red and blue on that last bass guitar that Lakeland made for him, uh, yeah. which was the Austin Villa guitar because their colors are, you know, blue and red. So I put the blue and red strings on it. Yeah. Yeah. So we've covered the collaboration with EMG and the collaboration with uh, Ashdown, but the, the collaboration with Lakeland, what, how, how is that? The, they're basically P bases, right? Yes. Yeah. So what are the, what are the, what are the things that make it geezer? Um, I, he, well, he started using them. Let's see, I came into play as his base tech in late 2006. Okay. Um, and I think he was just starting to use them for a couple of years then. Um, so they, they was already on board. But I think that what, what he liked about it and what I liked about it, and I think what Lakeland liked about it was because I was more proactive than my former tech there. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, cause I, I didn't know any better. You know, I, that's the, you know, the eulogy on my tombstone will say I'm too stupid to know I couldn't do anything yeah, because yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know. So I just called these guys up and said, hey, I need a base. And they built one, and they sent it to him. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that was easy. Uh, but, you know, when I got this thing, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. It's a good base. And, they, I mean, they sounded great. I mean, I love the way they cut their wood and how they shaped the bodies. You know, and Geezer loves them. And, you know, so I thought, well, let's do something with these guys. So uh, I started working on the, the what we call the T1 base, the first design, which was a P base. Uh, and John there at Lakeland uh, used his genius and made this thing amazing. I, I mean, I sent him ideas. Uh, so when I was doing this, I didn't, of course, I didn't tell Geezer what I was doing. But yeah. I, when I was talking to him one day, and I said, hey, uh, 
you know, because I've been to his house a million times, and I, I took pictures of all his, you know, because he, he, he kept his, his most five favorite most guitars in the whole wide world. The, the five he loves best out of all of them. And he had them displayed in his one foyer. And I took pictures of them and all. And I said, hey, uh, tell me about your five most favorite guitars. Like, why, did, why do you like this one for this particular reason and this one for this particular reason? So he told me all this stuff, and I wrote it all down. And I called John at Lakeland and said, this is what he's telling me. So I, I said, I need something with stripes because he, loved, he used to have this old John Birch stripe base. Uh, so he wanted like a stripe paint job. But Lakeland took it even better. They made a pick guard that was striped, aluminum pick guard that they striped. Amazing. Uh, and then there was other things like with the neck and the inlays and, you know, the pickup designs and stuff like that. You know, so if it was, it was like a P pickup. Uh, kind of thing, and then the knobs, you know, like he, he, you know, like a, just a tone and a volume, you know, and uh, so just stuff like that. Color meant something. Headstock being painted one color, so all, you know, all these ideas, and they done it all, and they made the the T one base. But the ideas that I couldn't fit on the T one, uh, coincidentally, so Geezer's name on the road was T one, uh, since he and I are both named Terry, my nickname was T two. Uh, so I, you know, so the fir- of course the first base that was designed for him was called a T1, and then, you know, me to to fix my ego, designed the second one called a T2. Yeah, yeah, of course. Which was a was a P PJ style base. Okay. It was a still a, a P body, but I used a uh, like a P neck mm-hmm. and a J neck combined. So I, it was it was not as thin as a J neck, but not as wide as a, as a P. At the nut or right all over. at the nut. So okay. I so I I split the difference. Okay. Uh, so it's it's half half the width of a of a P, but a n- little extra wider than a J. That's a nice feel. Yeah. If you, if you cup your hand and make that C between your thumb and your and your index finger, yeah. that's kind of what I what I modeled after. Was like that's a nice feel. I think maybe that's one of the things that I love so much about my older Yamahas because they yes, are definitely it's in the between. same. It's kind of the same thing. I have fairly short fingers for a bass player. Yeah. So it it fits me. Yeah, and it's you know and they're not as rounded. It makes them round. You know, so they're they're kind of like a flat on the ends because it, it just so you can guys with shorter fingers can can make that reach around or yeah. you know because some guys like to play the E with their thumb, yeah. you know, which is okay. I could never do that. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't have that kind of talent. But uh, so we, so we did that one, and again with the aluminum uh, pick guard. But uh, the the T one base was made black and silver. I'm not a much of a gold guy, uh, but the T two, I wanted something different, so we did gold. So we did a gold pick guard, but the problem with that was we couldn't figure out how to stripe it. You know how to make the was they anodize it, and we couldn't figure out how to make the anodize go, you know, in the stripe like we did on the black on the black one. Uh, still in the works though. I haven't given up. I know there's a way to do it. I got a lathe at the house. We're working on it. Yeah. Uh, but that too, yeah, that too was uh, uh, kind of a straightforward, you know, volume, volume, tone kind of thing. Uh, yeah, especially when when uh, collaborating with EMG and made them pickups, uh, it just kind of brought that bass alive. You know, I, I think they used lolliers in them things when they first made, which I love. I love a lollier, uh, but mine are better. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've gone through everything geezer related in detail from 2006 till now. The 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 hard keys, the ash downs, the signature pickups, the strings, the basses. Well, let's not forget the wah wahs. Or, yeah. the str- or the straps. All right. Well, let's go there then. Wall wall. Uh, great story. Um, worked with Jim Dunlop, the great Jim Dunlop, and uh, and Chris Johnson. Yeah. Work, 
Went to work for Dunlop. Go figure. So, uh, you know, I was sitting at the house, and I was talking. Actually, I was talking to Tony, Naomi. So I called him on his birthday or something, and we were talking. And I, I just said, hey, coincidentally, way back when, do you remember, you know, because Geezer was the first recorded bass player to use a wall on record, you know, when it, with NIB. And I asked Tony, I said, do you remember what wall that was? Because Geezer borrowed it from Tony. Oh, yeah. And uh, he didn't remember. So I thought, okay. You know, so I did some research and I found out there was like seven or eight walls at the time, you know, or companies that made walls. So I bought them all. You know, I got the shin walls. You know, I got all of them, which I still have. So I set all these things up in my, in my basement of my house, which was 900 square feet of stuff. I mean, I had guitars and drums and flutes and keyboards and all kinds of crap. And uh, so, I, you know, I set up all these things and I would just A-B them all and listening to NIB, trying to figure out which one he used. And I couldn't figure it out. You know, but I found one that was pretty close and uh, said, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just start the modeling here. So I went online and bought a wall pedal uh, from a, a company in China. And the only reason I bought it there is because it was disassembled and I had to solder everything on myself, uh, which I wanted. And it was in great detail. So I put, I put little volume pots on the key factors like the, the toe and the heel, the cue, you know, so I could... I could dial in how I wanted it to sound, you know, so I can really get it closer. Uh, so I bought this thing and uh, wired it all up, and I had all these pots hanging out of it, and uh, which is funny because that's what Dunlop did, you know, and their shops they, when they brought me their prototype for us to d- design was the same way, but except they mounted their their you know lack of a better word volume pots in the bottom, uh, so I could con- I can adjust them with a little screwdriver. You know, so I took it, to, so I, they sent it to the house, and I, I used my magic there, and I got it semi-close, took it on tour, and, uh, you know, Giza would we'd play with it in his dressing room, and then we'd use it live one night, and then we'd tweak it the next day in his dressing room and use it live one night. You know, but I always had the backup next to it, just in case it sounded like poop, and we'd, he didn't want to use it, he could always use the one next to it. Uh, when we did that, so when I, we did that, so I, did, I had the video people not film him from the neck down. Because I didn't want anybody seeing, you know, the two wall walls there, because oh, yeah. we were still it's still prototyping. So no industrial espionage. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that and that was hard enough to do that anyway. And, and, and you know, Geezer kind of knew what we were doing then because he knew we were kind of modeling this thing, and I wanted to make it right for him. You know, so, and it took about it took a little while because we were touring, then we take a break, we would tour. So it was about a year and a half, maybe two years it took to get this thing done. But I remember. Uh, so it was Jim Dunlop, Chris Johnson, and their head engineer came out. And, uh, you know, we, we was in the dressing room, and Geezer's playing. He's like, yep, that's it. And, you know, gave it to Jim and said, make it. So he made it. And, uh, but they wanted it back. They wanted that first one back because I was going to keep it and frame it. But they were like, okay, you can have it back. But I got the second one. That, <laughs> that, is, that is exciting. Yeah, it was a lot of fun because it's something I've never done. Like, I've never done any of this kind of stuff. But. Which that's another reason I love Geezer because he let he, I had the privilege of of him letting me do it, he, you know because I had no idea what I was doing, but he you know he's seen something in me and I and, and these guys the company guys like me and uh, we got it done after these years. And it seems like a lot of this stuff was your it was your initiative. Yeah, a lot of out it. of curiosity. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So yeah, because I, you know Geezer was going to let me do it, and I wanted to do it. And these yeah. companies were happy to, to let me experiment and, you, you know, use their time. And yeah. they, was all, you know, they were very generous with their time yeah. and their product. 
That was good. It was a very good learning curve for me, for sure. So now with uh, Jeff, of course, I saw the show last year, and I, for part of the show, I stood next to the 810 side stage. Oh, yes. And yeah, then I was out in it. Yeah, and then I was out front, too. But it seems, uh, it seems that Jeff, first of all, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jeff's. And this summer. I am, too. He's a great uh, guy. This summer, I got to be poor man's Jeff Pilsen because I, I played in Dawkins for three months because their bass player broke oh, his really? arm. So I subbed in <laughs> Dawkins. So, so, you're, so you're no slouch. You can play bass. Jeff's stuff on those records is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Because it is simple. Those of us that like uh, pick-style bass, you know, like we're talking Peter Baltus from Accept, my old buddy yeah, back yeah. in Nashville. Oh, yeah. And we're talking uh, yeah. Cliff Williams from ACDC. Yeah. And I then we're Cliff. talking, you know, Jeff Pilsen. You listen to those docking records, and there are no real bass lines. It's just straight eighth notes. Yep. But the guys that can really do that are my guys. And the older I get, the more I disappear yep. into that so i certainly had great respect for jeff before taking the docking gig but then taking the docking gig and watching a right. bunch of old live stuff with him singing and playing at the same time i really go okay this guy this guy is a rare talent yeah he he has a lot of talent yeah i mean there's a lot of stuff that he does that people i don't know if they know that he does it yeah. you know but but you know he's our music director here with Forner. Yeah. uh you know, he, he makes sure that the, you know, we just did the orchestra stuff. He makes sure all that stuff's written right and, you know, scored well. And, you know, he's, his hand's in it, you know. Yep. He records a lot of that stuff in his studio at, at his house. And, uh, and he works with a lot of people doing recording. He does a lot of writing. And, you know, we all know he can play a bass. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and, he's, and what I really love about him, he's, he's really easy and down to earth. But he knows what he wants. There's, there's no him hawing around. He's just like, you know, this sounds great or this doesn't sound great, and he'll tell you why. And then you can tweak it, and it's done. Yeah. You know, and it's, and that's a rare quality in a guy to know, you know, what he wants and how he wants it done, and what you need to do to make it happen. Because we know? all know a bunch of legendary hard rock guitar players that are never satisfied and don't know what they want, and they're always looking. Yeah. Well, that's why I like to be a bass tech. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, got we, four strings. I'm going to worry about the other two. Yeah. But so my question there after all that was when I saw, I can't remember, so you have to tell me, how many bases does he have out? Uh, two. Two. Yep. We got a but main uh, bass and a backup bass. That's the main it. bass is just a maple neck P, right? It's a 72. Yep. Yeah. And it's beat to shit. Can I say that? Yeah. Yeah, beat to shit. And, uh, but it's played. You know, it's a played beat to shit. Uh, I mean, it's uh, he, Jeff has an acid sweat, so I have to replace the pots every year. Oh, wow. Uh, as a matter of fact, tomorrow I'll go in and replace its input jack because it's going bad. Oh, acid sweat. Yeah, he sweats. When, in the summertime, yeah, I'll sweat a lot, and it gets down inside there no matter what you do. I've tried everything, silicone around it and all that. but it's I'm a, Just to insert before we continue on Jeff, I, uh, I'm an obsessive Springsteen fan. And I, all right. I went to... Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years back when they yep. had a special exhibit on Bruce. Yeah. And he had lent them his number one, the one that he plays every day, the which telly? is an Esquire. Actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's old. Yeah. yeah, it's very old. And, I mean, I've seen 20, 25 Bruce shows at least up close. Yeah. So I've seen that guitar a lot. But when I was as close to that guitar as I am to you right now, the thing looked like shit yeah. not 
yeah, like shit because yeah. it was old and broken and dirty. But it looks like plate. shit because it looked like there was literally an epoxy layer all over it. Probably. Bruce must have a, 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 a acid sweat yeah. because the knobs and the imp, everything was just covered in white. Like, yeah. Yeah, I've it's never oxidation. seen anything yeah, yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah, well, you know. It, it might have because it might have been sitting there for a minute too. Like just yeah. base, it doesn't get time to do that because yeah. it's he's, it's it's always being played. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's it's his number one. So it, every it goes with him. So if if we travel from this A rig that we're on here uh, to the a B rig, it goes with us. Yeah. Except on the first run because it, it forgot it forgot to get packed in the truck. So we had to use his backup base on the B rig for his main base. And I oh. had to, we had to rent a base for his backup. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I, I remember he liked that backup base there. It sounds, it sounds, it's a 72 as well. You know, it sounds almost as good as his main base here. But when I got that rental base, holy man, shit. That I was, I worked on that probably three hours to get it to where he likes it. You know, to match matches main base. So no. in those three hours, what were the things you had to do? I had to replace the nut because the first thing that went was the nut. It broke right off. Uh, so we replaced the nut. Then uh, I had to file that nut. To get, once I got the neck straight, because that took a minute, uh, then I, you know, I set the, the height of the strings, then set the neck, put a new nut on it, filed it down, you know, got it to where it needed to be, where it needed to be. And then adjusted the pickups where they needed to be just to get that the tone that he likes out of them from the strings. And, uh, yeah, it, it came around. It was, uh, you know, I, I think he would have played it if he would have had to. But yeah. I, I don't, I mean, if he didn't have to, I don't think he would have. I think he would have just stuck to, to, the, to the backup bass. Uh, but uh, but it, it, uh, the backup bass did come around and sound really, really good. Uh, again, you know, I had to clean the pots and things. Because they do get dirty over time, and yeah. if, you know, they'd sat for two months, you know. So then I got, you know, it's got to get a good clean. I get the toothbrush out, you know, yeah. clean in between the frets, and you know, where I polish them and stuff. But base tech wise, you're, uh, well, especially now, hopefully with a with a Kemper. But base teching for for uh, for Jeff is is a whole lot less high maintenance, I would assume, than than base teching for for geezer with Wawa pedals and well bigger back line and all that stuff you know it's it's yeah i mean it, it was a yeah definitely a, a whole different animal but uh not really the guys so much i mean they're both kind of the same i mean you know geezer uh, my first gig as bass tech with geezer in 2007 we was in canada and i was so nervous you know because i was a sound guy until then then i became a bass tech and so you know I, a friend of mine taught me a bunch of stuff a guy named pat ryan taught me a bunch of stuff and uh he lived in st louis and He's toured, you know, he's worked for everybody. And uh, I told him, I said, hey, I just took a gig with Geezer being a bass tech. How do I do it? And he goes, come over. Come so I, you, that's amazing. So I, I spent a bunch of time at his house, you know, taking guitars apart and putting them together and learning stuff. And, you know, online learning stuff. And, you know, which I kind of knew some stuff because I was a bass player back in the old days. When, you know, And you kind of get things figured out. But, I, you know, I took it a step farther. I looked at wood, how they cut it, because I, I used to build stuff too. So... You know, I'd look how they cut the wood and assemble the stuff and attach the fretboards and, you know, just to kind of get more familiar with what was going on in this new world that I decided to join. Uh, so the first show at Geezer is I was so nervous, I set him on stage and forgot to turn the belt pack on his wireless. So he's on stage and they're getting ready to start the song in like 30 seconds and I just happened to glance at my wireless system and I noticed that my, my lights weren't on. I'm like, oh, shit. 
So I ran on stage, and I flipped it on. He goes, what's the matter? I go, nothing. I said, have a good show, and I patted him twice on the back. And I took off, and it, was, it worked fine. So that was my thing after that. So every night when they went on stage, I'd always pat him twice on the back, you know, and say, have a good show. And he'd say, and you. And then that's the, we did that for, I don't know how many shows, 500 probably. And uh, just because he never knew. <laughs> he never knew that I almost got fired my first day. So, you started bass teching sort of at the highest level for a legend. It's a, it's a great story that you got that yeah. gig. You took it, and you said yes to it. And after you said yes, you called your buddy and said, how do I do it? I, well, I just wanted to make sure that I did what was needed yeah. of, of me to do. You know, I mean, so, I didn't want to fail. So, now that we've talked about those two guys that you work for, let's talk about you. What, what were you up to before 2006? You were a sound guy? I was. I had an audio company in St. Louis called Airco Audio for 30 years. Uh, you know, I had 12 employees and a big system, and, we, you know, we travel around doing PA and lighting and stuff. For, I've done presidents and heads of state and bands, and, you know, I, I met a lot of band guys. I mean, I met Rudy Sarzo at one gig, and, you know, Reed and I are still friends. He was friends on a podcast a month ago. Was he? And I was on his radio I, show I, the next I, week. I was yeah. doing him a deal back in the day when, uh, uh, you know, I was I, I tech for Rudy. Actually, I was the only tech there. You know, Ronnie wanted somebody there, and he called me. He goes, you want to do this? He goes, you can look after Goldie and Rudy and, and uh, Simon. I go, hell yeah. And what was, year was this? This is uh, right before he got sick. It was probably late 2009 because we were going to do a, we were gonna do a Christmas tour in Europe. And that's when he was. That's when he got sick. And uh, so that's when Rudy was playing uh, PB Cirrus basses, right? I believe so. Yeah. See, I, see, and he's a funny guy because he's a he's a prankster. So during rehearsal, he, he goes, "I like my strings changed every day, and I want you to boil them." You know, and I'm saying, "Okay," because we used to do that back in the old days. Uh, you know, I to, used to do it because I was yeah, broke. Right. <laughs> you know, so I thought, well, maybe you know, maybe maybe he likes the feel of them. I don't know. So I did it. You know, so like four days later, I said, here's your strings. And he looks at me, he goes, really? And I go, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> you got me. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're almost neighbors in Woodland Hills, me and him, a few yeah. blocks apart. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, he's a really good guy. Yeah, so yeah you, good guy. I don't think, I told somebody the other day, I'm in my late 40s, and I said, I have not met a nicer person in the music industry ever than Rudy Sarso. Yeah, he, I, he, you, he loves, he'll talk to you, and you can ask him anything, and yeah, you it's just, just a you, you really good personality. You understand why all these people hire him to go on tour, because obviously, yeah. going on tour, playing bass, quite a few people can. Yeah. But the guy, just he's smiling ear to ear the whole time. Well, and he's got a repertoire that'll kick yeah. your butt. I mean, he yeah. knows he can play any, almost any kind of music. Yeah. Probably all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, with with Giz, I try to keep it down to, you know, because it, it was funny because he and I were talking one night, and I I was astounded when I said, you know, so what signature stuff have you have made? And he's like, nothing. I'm like, you're shitting me. Nothing. He's like, nope. And I go, not even a guitar. He's like, nope. I'm like, well, we're going to put a stop to that. Yeah. So my first call was to Lakeland and said, Geezer's never had a guitar. Never. I said, want to do one? And they're like, sure. So we did. And yeah, that's, that's what started all this stuff. Was yeah. I thought, let's have Geezer everything. Yeah. You know, if, if people want to sound like Geezer, this is the way to do it. You know, get the guitar, get the pickups, get the wah-wah pedal, get the amplifier. 
You know, hell, I would have done a speaker, too, if I could have. So it's interesting. I mean, I want to go down a rabbit hole, but, but I'm one of those guys, especially now that I'm getting into my playing more pick style, straight ahead rock and roll. I'm going to say Jeff Pilsen style. Mm-hmm. I've never enjoyed distortion pedals. I'm, I'm preparing for all the comments on this podcast yeah. now. Well, He's an idiot, but I, I, there's fuzz too, though. Yeah, fuzz was always good. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I own the EBS Billy Sheehan distortion pedal, and I absolutely love it. So that's a that's a new thing. But uh, another great guy. Yeah, but the way that speakers react when you push them, if you're a bass player, is magic. Yeah, between between you know. I think the reason that so many guys like an Ampeg fridge and the combination of the SVT and the 10 is both of those things, the harder you push them, the more they lean back. They're almost like punching a fist into like a really soft bag of sand, yeah, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and they sound tough, but they also sound warm and cuddly at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And to me, a lot of people come up to me after shows when I play. I play D- D'Addario Pro Steels, the oh, nice. brightest piano sound you can get. And I play really hard with a pick. And everyone's like, in small clubs where they're hearing more stage volume than PA, they're all like, yeah. what's the distortion pedal? How is your sound that tough? And I go, that speaker's sweating just a little bit. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. And, and if I was designing... If I was helping a company design something, I've helped Mesa Boogie with a few amps and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. just, but if I was really helping a company design something, it'd be a speaker cabinet. But I guess that's the unsexiest thing to do a, 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 a signature series or, or a, put your name on. But it's interesting that you mentioned that you'd design a speaker if you could. Now, yeah. if you could, how would you do it? Well, I, uh, I, I've, I have a long background with speakers. It's, I mean, since the middle late 70s when yeah I, you know, being a pa guy and all that yeah and i used yeah. to hang out with you know like bobby heil from like heil microphones that bobby heil yeah. and then another guy named don hartwig yeah. uh that designed a lot of the amplifier circuits for heil back in the you know 60s uh these guys taught me audio they taught me how to solder they taught me how to build cabinets uh another guy named stan nickens taught me you know the art of mixing you know with these guys uh if I was to do a speaker, so when I started at Bass Tech with Geezer in 07, uh, the first thing I got rid of, I hate to say it, was the 810. I didn't like it. I didn't like it with the 12s and the 15s we were using. I, I thought it was too mushy. You know, I guess lack of a better word, mushy. Uh, it just it didn't fit with what I thought that sound needed to be. You know, and Geezer was kind of reluctant. And I said, well, let me, you know, let me just show you something. So this is when I called, you know, Bob at, at St. Louis Music and said, you know, can you build me some more cabinets? And had to send him, you know, di- you know, dimensions and that. And he built the boxes and I put speakers in them. You know, I called EV and got, because there was 12Ls is what we used and then 15Ms. Uh, so I built more cabinets. So when I, I got rid of the 810s and added more 12s and 15s, and I said, is this more... And I, well, I kind of modeled after Tony's rig because I looked at, at the stage and I thought we could be asymmetrical here. We could do kind of what Tony's doing, you know, because he had four tops and four bottoms. And I thought, let's do four and four with geese, kind of make them the same way. So they kind of look the same instead of this towering thing of what the sound guy thought was cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I got when I got rid of the 810s and I and I uh, plugged in these the 12s and the 15s 
And and he's a, he's a really easy guy, just like Jeff and you know Rudy and these other guys. They kind of know what they want and you know what's in their head, and they can transpose that from their ears. So when they hear it, their brain says, "Yep, that's it," or "Nope, that's not it," and it's just that quick. So Geezer hits an e, an open E, and he goes, "Yep, that's it." And we took it from there and just started EQing a little bit, and then poof, there was the new rig, and that's what we used forever and ever and ever. Uh, once and he had two, it used to have two A10s. Uh, so his rig, when I got there, was there was two double fifteens, uh, four quad twelves, and two eight tens. That was the rig, and then I changed all that to four quads and then four double fifteens, and that was the rig. And we used that rig for until the end of Sabbath, you know, till they retired. Well, I have to agree with you on on the on the Ampeg eight ten. We're both like get, getting hung after this, but. Well, I'm, no, there's nothing nothing wrong with it. I mean, yeah. I've, I've got one at the house with my yeah. old amp pickup that sounds great, but it, it's because it's a sound that it's good. But with 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 that a certain kind of music, it might not fit. You know yeah. what I mean? There, there might be another way to do it. And here and here is my thing, and this is very personal. When I play with a pick, I love the Ampeg A10 because yes. that muddiness yes. will translate. Sure, as and it's great. So with a pick, I can't beat it. Finger style, I prefer four tens, and I prefer higher wattage drivers right. because I find through an eight ten when I play finger style, I I boost enough low end on the amp where I where it gets a lot of farting. Yeah, that low end farting never happens with a pick. So basically, I like lower wattage tens with a pick because yeah. they break up nicer and faster. And then I like higher wattage tens in smaller sure. boxes when I play finger style because they can handle the low B and finger style when you yeah, get yeah. more woof out of your actual hands right so that's well sort of yeah my experience well because well, you're, you're moving more air then yeah. so it's it's you yeah. know you're using more of a low end and but i am a tens guy so yeah. that's why oh, I, I, really, I love a 10 i love you a 10. know me- messed around with it uh, you know but with with geezer i didn't love the 10 i yeah. mean I, I know it, it was okay you know in the 70s it was great because they didn't have a technology like we do now uh you know, I mean, I, I've got an old amp rack that, that him and Tony use. So it's, it's Crown amplifiers. It's yeah. a PA amplifier yeah. with a PA crossover. Yeah. And that's what they used. And it was good, you know, but they used bass bins. You know, they used PA cabinets to, yeah. for a bass rig. Uh, you know, so it made sense. Uh, and then they got, you know, then when he got introduced to, to Ampex stuff, he started using that, which is great. I mean, I seen him on stage back in the old days with four tens, and that sounded fucking amazing. But... You know, when you get to arena style, uh, eight tons fine. But to me, it was I, I needed more air to be pushed, so I needed a, a bigger speaker with a little bit more power behind it. That's what you know. The 15s did that, and the 12s allowed. They gave me some more uh, mid range and some cut that I needed, you know, to cut through that 15. And that's you know that's why I decided, you know, the 10s aren't going to do that. They're just going to add mud, yeah. you know, because there's there's no way to there's nowhere to go with them. There's there was I, I had the slot filled with the 12s and then the 15s were taking care of the low end so i'm like i'm gonna have to get rid of the the 810s and you know he was reluctant but uh, he let me do it and uh, and it was i think it was a pretty good choice and it sounded really good after that you know and for a guy that doesn't you know i was not a bass tech i mean that's when my audio guy came out saying you know if i stand on the end of the stage and i got my my meter and i can meter you know i can hit an open e and i can meter at 102 db that's not too bad, and it's it's my feet are rumbling, and I can walk over to the middle of the drum riser and the, where Ozzy stands in the center, and my I can still feel a little bit of shake on my feet. I was yeah. happy, yeah. you know, because Ozzy didn't want to hear much of that bass, so it's it's kind of I worked with a lot of singers like that, so that's yeah. been a, which, a, an issue. Yeah, because it's yeah. hard for them to pitch, 
you know, so, you know, I, I had that all in consideration when I was building this rig, you know, because there's a lot of things you have to consider as monitors and stuff. So, uh, so you know, so I, I kind of, it's just like a concentrated sound is like on geezer's side, you know, on the right side. Another thing that you kind of stumbled upon quickly about 15 minutes into this was to use more cabinets at lower volume to get a bigger sound. Mass, ver yeah, mass yeah. versus volume, yeah. And I've loaded in, not lately much, but I've loaded in a few times at different gigs, not when I was on tour, but playing clubs, and the lead singer, the guitar player, like, well, why are you bringing two big cabinets? I'm like, because I want to play them quieter, because it sounds better. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people have issues, or not issues, but they don't quite understand that 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 theory and my summer tour with Dawkins, I just did I did I did two eight tenths and I yeah. played them lower and I it sounded so much better right. than one probably line. way full yeah. it, it yeah. covered a nice part of the stage where you were you know like yeah. I, I call it your box so in, in your box it was fine I don't want to fight with a guitar player volume wise I right. want to get under him frequency wise yeah. yep. and uh, that did a better job of doing that I thought well you know and I learned that I learned that from watching Tony because Tony would walk over you know, to Geezer's side, not not just to you know, you know, hang out with his buddy while they're playing, or you know, communicate. He he would walk over just to hear it, just to hear what Geezer was doing with his guitar stuff. Just because so it was you know, but that's what Tony did. Is like he would listen. He's a he's a he's, out of all the people I know in my lifetime, I've never met a guy that had an ear like Tony. I mean, he, this guy can hear stuff, man. It's he that's a, he's a superhero at hearing. I'm telling you, he's a badass. But so, you know, he'd walk over and listen. He's like, yeah, that's good. And because he, he'd, he's not a bass guy. So he'd walk back on his side, you know, and get, get back in his little box. But, but uh, you know, he, but I like that about him because, and that's, and I was learning this watching him. I was like, he's just listening to the stage. You know, he's, he's walking behind Ozzy to see what Ozzy's hearing, walking over to Giza to see what Giza's hearing, and then go back in his world. Mm -hmm. You know, which I kind of thought that's cool. You know, and, that's fantastic uh, for a lead guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and, uh, well, he's, uh, yeah, he's a he's a you know I don't know bionic, but uh, amazing. It was amazing, and uh, yeah, I learned a bunch just from watching him do that. And I thought, uh, yeah, this is good. That I that I made you know this our cabinets our own little box, and it's not bothering anybody. You know, we did have trouble once with Ozzy, and I had to turn the cabinets a little bit. Uh, and I think a couple times I might have turned the outer the inner two boxes off. You know, that was at the drum riser, just to because they was getting he couldn't pitch. He was having a hard time pitching. I'm like, okay, no problem. I grabbed the amps, just turned them down, because every cabinet had its own side of the amp, you know, so I could do that sort of thing, you know, which yeah. is another part I loved. Yeah, and, that, and you know, obviously that's a, I mean, the, m my years in country taught me one thing, that it really is all about the singer all the time, yeah. and it's very important, I think, like you said, you have the different volumes for the different sides of the bass yeah. rig to be able to cater to the singer, yeah. you know. Yeah, you know, I when I played I played country all through high school. I mean, yeah. it's yeah, you know, played played country bass. Yeah. Back, you know, back when country wasn't cool. Yeah. Well, <laughs> country bass will really really cuz I came from metal and I came from R&B. And when I started playing country bass, it really taught me note value. If you're playing a ballad like where does a note end? We all know we got to hit the note in the right spot. Right. We don't want to play, you know, want to be on top of the beat and sound like a beginner. You don't want to be too lazy and make the song drag. 
You want to be have good time, but playing country bass, you really learn where to cut the note off, how much space to leave at the end of notes. Yeah. Well, and you can learn that. I mean, learning any kind of music, no matter what you like, rock or hillbilly or country or whatever, listen to the old stuff, you know, and then transpose that to the new stuff. And you'll see you'll, it'll, it'll click. It'll click like a light coming on. You're like, oh, yeah, I get it now. Because the old guys had it. And it, these guys that are playing now learned it from somebody older, mostly. And uh, I think, uh, you know, at least I did. You know, when I was a kid, I listened like, you know, the Beatles and stuff, of course. But one of my favorite things was, like, uh, the, the Wrecking Crew, them oh, guys. absolutely. Because they played on so much stuff. And I, I knew about them way back, you know, in the 70s. And I thought, this is cool. These guys, it, 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 was, kind, it was kind of weird for the bands because the bands would come in and all they got to do is sing because the, the, their parts are already played. A music factory. Yeah, yeah. strange yeah. stuff. But, but look at the players that came out of that. I mean, yeah. Glenn Campbell was one of them. Just amazing yeah. talent. Yep. You know, Tommy Tedesco. I mean, all these guys are badass. Uh, Carol Kay, holy shit. Yep. I mean, she plays a bass like it's nothing. I mean, and her, she plays the hard stuff so easy. Yeah. They're like, oh, I can do that. And you go home and try to do it, and you can't. Yeah, yeah. Spe- speaking of bionic. that Yeah, yeah. just amazing. I mean, and, and these, these are people that, just like us and, and the listeners, are, they're just people. Yep. And they sought to do something that... Uh, they didn't know they couldn't do, so they just done it, and they done they done it well. You know, yeah. we look up to them now, yeah. and thank them for their talent and sharing that with us. That's good advice, I think, for younger people. You, you look into the American music factories. I say that yeah, in, yeah. in quotation sure. marks, which would be the Wrecking Crew, yeah. the '70s Laurel Canyon, like Jackson Brown. Sure. Oh yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. And then you have Tennessee the, Mafia. I mean, and then you have the house band at Stax, which this can be oh, an right. entire podcast for me because Motown and Stax both changed the world. Mm-hmm. But I was a Stax guy because Mo- Motown were trying to make everything very slick, and Stax kept it very, very raw. Yeah, yeah. But the Stax house band, to me, which was you know two black guys, two white guys making right. music in Memphis when people are killing each other in the streets right. over that very same thing. Uh, that That's house amazing. band was magic to me. Al Jackson, Booker T, Duck Dunn, and C. Cropper. Yeah. Those four guys, man. That's. But it's so interesting because the singers were all re- not replaceable. But and then you know Motown was another house band. Well, and then yeah, the they rotated. Shows. I mean, it, you know, they, people pop up and, and. And those music factories, they were, they were ran like that with a session player, m- more for financial reasons than artistic reasons. But as history showed. The artistic reasons were the major ones. The fact right. that they were so good that they could do anything. Right. And at the time, the label was just saving money and cranking it out quick. Yeah. You know. But well, see, and I, you know, back when I was on a, a label, you know, I was a kid, and it was kind of the, it was kind of surreal. Uh, I, I don't want to say the record label name, but it was a little bitty thing, and when you know, in St. Louis, but I was with a, you know, some kids, and I, we had this band, and we played like new wave kind of stuff. But they wanted the girl we had singing was had a really great voice, and our keyboard player uh, also had a really good voice. And we would make music. Our guitar player wrote the stuff. We went to MIT after a while, and uh, so we'd play this stuff on this record. And we're like, you know, we went to their studio, and it was somebody's basement, and they had built walls and put you know insulation and stuff, and and made these dead rooms to record stuff. And it was pretty uh, to me. It was amazing. I'm like, I. It's just ingenuity at its finest, and, yeah. and, it's, and it sounded so good in there, man. Yeah. 
And, you know, so we cut like three songs. And, you know, they did whatever they did with them. But uh, I, I found that experience to be really good. And, I, you know, it, it didn't pan out to do anything but except give me a little bit of knowledge and how that stuff works and, and how people can work. But I, when we went down there, there were some incredible players just hanging out in, in a basement. And they made like, there was like 16 of these little bitty rooms. You know, so they have a guitar in one and drums in another one and bass in one and a horn guy. And it was, you couldn't really hear the music until you were up on that room and you could hear what they were playing. And holy man, it was, it was like, holy shit, this is in St. Louis, you know, these guys. But I, I thought it was a great experience for me. And, and we got to have some really good players come in and play on this music we were doing. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I think I was 17 or something at the time. So it was just a kid. But, you know, learning a bunch of stuff. But, you know, I start, started my country career when I was playing bass guitar in a country band. Was that, your, was that what, what got you into bass? That was my question. Um, you know, I, I was, no, I was in a rock band. I was, I don't know, 15 or something, 14, playing guitar. And I, didn't, I heard my first live bass guitar at a, at a practice we were having at this kid's house in his, in his dining room or something. And he had a bass guitar. And I'm like, I've never heard a bass guitar. You know, I've, I've seen them and seen them on TV, but never heard one up close and personal. But he started playing this thing. I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to play that. And I like that. I like the sound of that. Yeah, and if you play it at somebody's house, like I had another bass player come over to my house recently. He wanted me to help tweak his pedals. And we were playing fairly quiet, but there were still things were falling off my shelves in my kitchen. Yeah. And <laughs> when is that not cool? <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah, right. If you're a kid, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, I liked the tone of it, and it, it was just good. And yeah. I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. So I, you know, I just what I did. I thought, oh, I'll just play bass. And it was just, it was, to me, it was easier because it was less stuff. Yeah. I didn't have to have pedals and, you know, all these gizmos and yeah. things. I just had an amplifier and a cable and a bass. I was happy. So since you have been on so many sides of bass, you started out as a teenager playing bass, yep. and you've ran sound companies, and then now you've been a bass tech. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and saying this in the most polite way, since you're not 20 anymore. Nope. Definitely far from that. <laughs> Although I look like it. What What are your and not not as a tech? What are, What are some of your favorite bases throughout history? Because you've been part of, like, completely. They can be uncool choices. They can be really uncool choices. Everyone is gonna, you know, say, "Oh, Music Man and Fender P bass and you know all that stuff." But like, what yeah. are some of your favorite instruments that you've encountered as a tech, as a player? Well, you know, I, I work for a, a band in St. Louis, and they do a, a Zeppelin tribute or called Celebration Day. A guy named okay. Cubby Smith plays bass. Badass. I, I've known him since we were all kids working in bars. Yep. But he plays an upright bass, so I get to tech that, mm-hmm. uh, which I love, which I, I have a 52 kneeling, but, but his is like an electric one, which is really cool. So I tech that thing. I love it. And then he's got an old hamstrung eight-string. Oh yeah, sixty-seven, the red one, which I, which I love that thing. That's that's a lot of fun to tech that thing. But you know, because when I get it, it's he ain't touched it in a year because you know I I tech for him every year and it's coming up. So we'll have a break with Foreigner pretty soon and I'll tech that gig. But uh, so I get to work on them things again, which I love. Uh, But you know, I I guess uh, I like the old Rickenbackers, you know, seventy-eight and before the old four thousand ones. Uh, I still have. I've got a. I've got a, a '67 uh, Hofner for. Was it a 401 or 4,000? Yeah, 401 or something. Paul McCartney bass. Uh, that I, you know I've had for a long while. Uh, love that thing. I, I just put a new volume pot in it that I got from Australia because I wanted to keep it date correct. So mine's a '67. I got a pop from a '66. Uh, so I just tech, did just that one. I love that one. Uh, you know, I just the. I, 
like old stuff is good just because I'm old and when I was when when it was new I was a kid so you know the old stuff now was new when I was a kid so I'm like I kind of like that stuff but uh, you know anything old I'm good with uh, uh, trying to think if there was another one there was another one oh the old the old Ripper bass oh yeah I mean the Gene Simmons you gotta love it those things record like a dream yeah yeah I I had I had one I had to get rid of it but uh, yeah that was a nice one. Yeah, I have a few buddies back in Sweden who are basically full-time metal engineers. They make metal, indie metal projects for Japan. Right. And, this, and they, they said just a ripper through a good amp can sound angrier than all distortion pedals. Oh, yeah. you can, it's just angry from the get-go. Yeah, well, and of course, my Yamaha bass. So I've, I got a, it's a, what Yamaha do you have? It's, I got a BB300. Mm-hmm. Uh, old school. And when I got it, I traded it. This is probably 1982 or so. And uh, my best friend had just joined the Army. And I, I went up to Fort Thank you. Went up to Fort Bragg with him. He was stationed there. And he had bought a bass guitar out of a pawn shop. And on our, on our trip from St. Louis to, to Fort Bragg, cause I had a little color television, portable television. And he was looking at it. And I'm looking at his bass. And he goes... Want to trade me that TV for that bass? And I go, yes, I do. <laughs> so, so it was That's a black, it was a black Yamaha BB three hundred, and then I had this company in St. Louis uh, called J Gravity uh, rebuild this thing. So I put Olympic pickups in it, the active circuit Olympics, and then uh, had the body painted white, and I did like a uh, like a Spring Session M album cover thing, where I had a, a red and blue stripe on it, you know, from uh, and it was like clear, so. Uh, Jay Grave and I invented this paint. We called it a cellophane paint because you could see through it. Because mm-hmm. I painted the body white, and I used this red stripe and this blue stripe. And it took a minute uh, to, to make this paint to do what we wanted to do anyway. So we figured it out and done it. Uh, and then I, I, I named the base Amanda uh, after, as my girlfriend at the time. So this is probably... Probably 1986 when I was way before this. the Boston song called Amanda. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, so but when I when I spelled her name on the base, I put the first A capital A upside down, oh. and then um, you know Amanda after that, and I put it. It was I had a PJ style, so I put him you know where the in between the two pickups in between the P's and the J is where Amanda went, and that, you know it was oh the best part about the base is I put a Kaler whammy bar on it, oh. so it has a Kaler base whammy bar. I've actually never played a bass with a whammy bar. You, this thing, it, it's fun. It's a lot of fun because you can you bring the bar up and you can, you can you know pop a string but hit that whammy and it'll make some crazy shit. So, uh, but I used to use a Soundcraft 200, uh, like a mixing console, Soundcraft 200 yep. channel strip as my preamp. You know when I was hanging out with Don on them guys, Don was a super electronic whiz bang, so he made so I took a strip out of an old desk and he made me a preamp that I use with my crown amplifier through my PV double eighteen two ten cab. And this thing sounded amazing back then. And I, so to get all this work done this bass, I think it cost me it was about seven hundred bucks back then. Yeah. Which was a lot of dough. You know, yeah. I had to cut a lot of grass. But you yeah. know but uh, luckily I was you know I was uh, playing country music so I had I, I could afford it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I made two hundred bucks a weekend. So you're you're born and raised in St. Louis, right? Born in, well, I was, yeah, pretty much uh, in, in, was born in East St. Louis, Illinois, raised in Belleville, and moved to St. Louis back in 90, oh, I guess about 92 or so. The, 
inaugural guest on this podcast. I don't do very many episodes. It's been two and a half years. You're, I think, guest 16 or 17. Oh, wow. So, but the very first guest on the very first podcast is my best friend in Nashville, who is Jimmy Buffett's bass player. Oh, they're from St. Louis. And he's from St. Louis, as they, is his brother. And, uh, they're yeah. Kind of, they, well, they, they had well, they they had a band in St. Louis PM, right? called PM yeah. Peter Mayer. Well, yeah, yeah. but Small and, world. and funny. What's funny is one of my best friends, a uh, guy named Chad Stewart, is their sound guy when they do the PM set. Well, when Peter does his stuff, yeah, my buddy Chad's a sound guy for that. Yeah. So it, yeah, small, definitely a small world. But, but yeah, yeah so I, and he's a, that, and he's a badass bass player. His brother, he is. holy he, moly, he is, and he's. He's, he's very been, underrated, that guy. He's been my best friend. He's a very passionate bass player. Yeah. You know, there are... Uh, he used to play barefooted. Do you still do that? Because he used to play barefoot back in the day. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he was very hippie back in, mm-hmm. back in the day. Uh, when I first met him, he wore Birkenstocks, sweatpants, and tie-dyes every day. <laughs> and I'm like, look, you have a European friend now. I can help you with a few things. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me teach you a little bit. <laughs> I'm but, sure he uh, didn't balk at that. Yeah, no, it's been it's been really fun because Jim, as you mentioned, so he, so he was your first guest. Yeah, guy well, he from was St. My Louis? first guest because I figured the way to start a podcast yeah, about yeah. nerding out with bass players sure. is to have your best friend on who you nerd out with all the time. That's a bass player, sure. Yeah, uh, but I have been a little bit bass tech for Jim. He actually called me last week yeah. with a bunch of questions because Jim, as you just said, is a badass bass player, yeah. and he's interested in gear. But he somehow, uh, he just, he doesn't know a lot. And yeah, he, yeah. He, he knows a lot about he, his home studio. Which is okay. He knows how to play. He really knows That's how right. to play. Yeah. His natural feel is amazing. Right. But ever since we've been buddies, I have been his sort of like, uh, if not bass tech, I've been his like gear uh, guru. Gear guru. Yeah, yeah. right. That's so. Right. We have redone his setup for the last, for Buffett, a few times oh, nice. since I've yeah, known yeah. him. You yeah, know? good. Uh, I switched, I got him to switch over to Mesa from Gensbenz back when I first oh. met him. Because yeah. he just, the people at Mesa just were really interested in making their bass amps better and talking to artists on a daily level. Yeah, yeah. And they didn't have an attitude like they knew everything. Right. So, you know, you know that's always lovely. Yep. And uh, I played Sandberg basses from Germany the last Ooh, few nice. years a lot. So he plays Sandberg basses now on, on the road, which they're P basses. They yeah. just have a little bit more low mid oomph, a little bit. Little they, bit are more they modern. active, passive? Yeah, passive. They, they. I think they're active. I think he plays them passive, like yeah. I do. Yeah. But yeah, Jim. So uh, any of you guys that have uh, discovered this podcast in the last year or so, please go back and listen to the first episode. To one, hear the fact that I didn't know how to interview, and two, hear one of the baddest bass players, who. Uh, yeah, that that episode. Uh, uh, he's a, he's, a, he's a very well unknown badass bass player. Yeah, that should like, be known. And it's like a two and a half hour episode. <laughs> so it's, it's You're probably like this one. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. I, I talk yeah. a lot. Yeah, I mean that's you know, and Geezer and I done that. It's like we always share music. So if he finds something that he likes, he sends me a copy, and I do yeah. the same. We've done that for years and years and years, and I got some really good stuff out of it. You know, he sent some really good stuff. I mean, again, yeah. it's you know because a lot of people ask him, uh, you know. What are you listening to nowadays? Like, what's your favorite thing? And he, he's hard to impress, you know, but there's bands that he does like, you know, like uh, Bruno Mars. Uh, he, Geezer turned me on to him. I didn't know. Him. So uh, I had a bass made for him a while back, Geezer. And uh, he liked the big sparkly gold that yep. Bruno Mars had. Yep. 
So I called Lakeland, and they made me a big sparkly gold bass guitar, and it was badass. And and it was a surprise for him. He knew he was going to get it, but he didn't see it. But when he seen it, holy shit, I thought he was going to piss his pants. And he loved this thing. And he played it a few times on stage. But he's like, I don't want to mess it up. I'm just going to take it to the house. But but he loved that thing, man. It looked really good. They done a really good job. It's hard. Big metal flakes, hard to do. But uh, they done a good. All right, man. Well, we really appreciate you taking time after a long Oh, no, I appreciate day, your time. And I look, look forward to uh, seeing the show again tomorrow. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks, we'll see man. you then. Thanks so much, as always, for listening to the Lowdown Society. Uh, We have quite a few episodes coming up, and I hope to get them out at a faster pace. We'll see if that actually ever ends up happening. I hope to have a few more non-bass players on uh, discussing bass or bass-related things in the next few episodes. So you guys be looking forward to that. Uh, As I always say, we are a tiny podcast. uh, So if you guys know any fellow musicians that like to hear from the bass players and techs and people related to the world's biggest gigs and records being made in the world of bass, please let them know this podcast exists and um, please subscribe and review and all that good stuff. I look forward to uh, seeing you guys back here again for the next episode. So as always, stay funky, stay low, and keep it right here on the Lowdown Society Podcast. <laughs>